Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. My name's Sarah. How are you doing today, Sarah? I'm doing all right. Folk Fest is happening in Calgary, so I'm pretty stoked about that. Cool. I think I'll be coming with you for at least one out of three days. Oh, I'm coming with you for two days, apparently. Two out of four days. Okay, well, cool. (laughs) Neither of us are going the first night because we are recording this podcast. What are we watching this week? Well, uh, we're watching something that's probably going to be a little bit different this week from our other movies, especially our recent kind of string of American films. Uh, This week we are watching La Chute de la Maison Usher. From 1928, it is a French horror film, and I I don't think we've had any French movies on the show yet. No. Um, I mean, I think of The Magician, but that's just set in France. Right, and filmed in France, but it's a a Hollywood movie. Yeah. Um, This is a French film. It's directed by Gene Epstein, and it's written by Louis Bunuel, and it is a film that belongs to the French Impressionist School of Cinema. Okay. This might be one of the first films that we are watching that is not German Expressionist, where it isn't trying to get to that point. Right, not ripping off German Expressionism. Yeah. So I've seen this film twice, and I think you've seen it once before. Oh, this we watched this during our original horror movie spree back in like 2015. Yes, yes, we watched it together. So one of the times I've seen this, I've seen it with you. Both times I've seen this movie, I've struggled to stay awake (laughs) during it. Not that it's like a boring movie, but that the movie has like a a very dreamlike tone and is very kind of slow-paced and elegiac, so it tends to just kind of put me in like a hypnotized (laughs) space where I tend to nod off in the last third of it. Is that kind of the purpose of French Impressionism? No, Okay. (laughs) Um, So I first saw this movie in university. Uh, It was in Lee Carruthers' film theory course. And in watching this film, I also had to do uh, readings that were kind of attached to it. Uh, Three essays by its director, Epstein, as well as another essay by French film critic Louis Deluc. And I'm going to feel like kind of embarrassed on this podcast because I'm going to try to explain French Impressionism, (laughs) and I'm going to try to explain Gene Epstein's career, and I'm going to try to explain the critical theories and, like, film theories that underline this style in this film. And the fact is, like, I spent a lot of money to go to a university to, like, explicitly learn about this stuff, and, like, took this film in a course, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to get stuff wrong. (laughs) And if Professor Carruthers is out there listening to this podcast... That, like, I, I I am afraid of the grade that I will get <laughs> on this, like, recap of this information that I studied, uh, you know, gosh, eight years ago, seven years ago? Yeah. Somewhere in that range. Maybe she'll be a little easy on you. <laughs> okay, so here's the deal. French Impressionism is basically a reactionary movement. It was a school of films and directors and critics which formed sort of out of the burgeoning French film criticism scene in an attempt to create a unique French cinematic style that could kind of serve against German expressionism. In fact, the very name of the movement French Impressionism, it doesn't really have anything to do with impressionistic painting, Mm -hmm. uh, which, as we discussed in an earlier episode, just means paintings that look like the painting impression. Um, It has nothing to do with that. I'm pretty sure the name is literally just chosen to be, like, an antagonist to German Expressionism. That's really funny. Uh, The stylistic paradigm of French Impressionism in addition to being a reaction to German Expressionism, was also a reaction to Hollywood narrative filmmaking and to commercial filmmaking. None of the directors in the movement could agree upon what the aesthetic or philosophical basis of French Impressionism was. All they could really agree upon was that it wasn't those things. 
filmmakers and critics who are generally cited as being representative of the French Impressionist school are Abel Gantz, who is most famous for being the director of the 1928 epic film Napoleon, Gene Epstein, who directed this film, among many others, and was also a prominent French film critic, Jean Renoir, who would later direct Grand Illusion and Rules of the Game, which aren't French Impressionist films. They actually came after this movement sort of died down. Germain Dulac, Marcel Lherbière, and Louis Deluc. Uh, and Louis Deluc was considered one of the first film critics ever. The movement was generally considered to have started around 1918 and to have ended with the sound era. Basically, that sound film kind of killed this movement. The theoretical basis for the movement was as an extension of symbolist poetry and was sort of, you know, if you want to make generalizing statements about the movement, it's hard because no one in the movement could agree on what it was. But if you sort of take a step back and look at everything in the movement, the few general statements you can make are that it seems to be concerned with the interplay between reality and experience. Um, and this is where sort of symbolism comes in. It was sort of an avant-garde exploration of the perception of reality as taken through two main stylistic elements. The first being subjectivity, and the second being a concept called photogeny, which was a term sort of coined by Louis Deluc, but which Gene uh, Epstein fleshed out more in full. With subjectivity, the filmmakers sought to portray the internal state of their characters by bringing the audience into the story subjectively. So, showing the film as having a subjective point of view, not necessarily from the protagonist's point of view, but like literally showing the audience a subjective version of the story that would therefore express to the audience the internal state of the characters. Uh, and one of the reasons why sound film was kind of considered to have killed the movement is because it was thought that sound brought more realism to film and eliminated subjectivity. Uh, obviously that's not true because there's a lot of films that came later that would be subjective in nature, but when sound initially happened, it was considered to be kind of grounding film in a much more realistic place. So that kind of makes it sound like expressionism. Yeah, I was going to ask how, like, if there's, like, a table of, like, <laughs> or the Venn diagram of German Expressionism and French Impressionism and, and how, how much overlaps, because right now it sounds like just a circle. Right, so they just didn't want to be German Expressionism, so, like, they didn't want to have those stylistic elements. So it's less about look and more about techniques of editing and techniques of framing, less about lighting and set design in terms of the aesthetic. For example, Epstein would sort of be most influenced by Abel Gantz. What the two of them would kind of explore in the interplay between their styles as they influenced each other was the use of rapid rhythmic editing, as well as close-ups and superimpositions. So editing techniques where you would, you know, superimpose kind of one image over another to give that sense of subjectivity. But, you know, it's hard to put a finger on it because these guys <laughs> couldn't put a finger on it. Yeah. Epstein was born in Warsaw, Poland, and he went to medical school at the University of Lyon in France. After medical school, he got into film because he became a secretary for the Lumiere brothers, those pioneers of early cinema, and this led him into film production and film criticism. Uh, he began writing for the modernist journal L'Esprit Nouveau. So his first film was Pasteur in 1922, but it would be with his fourth film, Cour Fidel, in 1923, that he would start becoming influenced by Abel Gantz, particularly Gantz's film La Rue. And because of this interplay between the two of them, as well as these other directors or critics or critics-turned-directors, <laughs> this school of French Impressionism would start to emerge. In addition to subjectivity, the other main tenet was photogeny. And photogeny was, as I said, kind of coined by Dulac, but mostly developed by Epstein and outlined in his critical writing. The idea was it was a concept defined as occurring at the meeting point between what is in front of the camera and the filmmaker. There's something that the filmmaker intends in his mind to portray. And then there's stuff in front of the camera that the camera records. And that there's a point where those two things meet, and that's photogeny. And it's something that's not 
inherently controlled by the filmmaker or controlled by the people in front of the camera. Uh, it's an unforeseen thing that the two of them create between themselves. It is also said to be a defamiliarization between the spectator and what they are seeing on the screen. So it's created by an effect of the audience viewing the film and no longer perceiving what's on screen as just being, oh, that's a tree, or oh, that's a horizon, but finding a way to defamiliarize those things and present them as something else uh, so that they take on new conceptual existences within the minds of the audience. If you can't tell the people who were the critics and filmmakers who were creating this movement, in addition to you know being very avant-garde, were very academic and very <laughs> philosophical and very concerned with the artistic, philosophical, psychological underpinnings of the works that they were creating. With the photogenic stuff as well, it seems like they are just so interested in the artificiality of film. Mm -hmm. it's kind of, it reminds me of the piece of art that has the pipe, and in French, it says this is not a pipe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, and certainly one of the things they wanted to explore was what was it that made film as a medium different in its portrayal of stories and art than other mediums, and trying to find an expression with that medium that would be unique to that medium. They weren't interested in reality, and they weren't interested in what was being recorded by the camera, uh, or even necessarily what the filmmaker's trying to say. Like, photogeny is not supposed to be either of those three things. You know, it's not a depiction of the real world. It's not a depiction of what the camera's recording. It's not a depiction of the filmmaker's intent. It is something ephemeral outside of those three things. The difficulty of the French Impressionists, however, to define what it actually was, was seen as an essential failure of the movement by <laughs> critics exterior to it. Epstein, however, described any aspect of things, beings, or souls whose moral character is enhanced by filmic reproduction as being photogenic, and that anything not photogenic does not belong in cinema. So, essentially, the argument being that if you could record a thing with a camera and the act of recording it made it better than just observing it in the world, that means that thing is photogenic. And if you're not putting photogenic things in your film, you're doing it wrong. Okay. Now, I mean, that doesn't really make sense. No. And it's kind of a big batch of nothing because he doesn't describe how being photogenic improves the moral character of something being shown. It's also worth saying that, like, it's very hard to read his essays. Uh, they're very dense and very academic, but also very avant-garde. So they're just a very, like, thick layer of unintelligibility. You're also probably reading a translation, right? Absolutely so... I'm reading a translation, yeah. So it's just, it's so hard to get across, like, abstract philosophical ideals uh, through these various layers of yeah. uh, communication. So I might be getting something completely wrong. I don't know. That being said, Epstein's explorations in this regard kind of edged him close to surrealism. Yeah. And, you know, his trying to explore what photogeny means meant that he was starting to look at surrealist depictions in film as opposed to realist ones. Certainly that pipe painting that you bring up is, you know, a great bit of surrealism. So it's worth noting that this film, uh, Le Chute de la Maison Usher, was written by Louis Bunuel, the surrealist filmmaker who is most famous today for 1929's Un Chien Andalou. Oh, the cutting of the eye and the cloud yeah, yeah. thing? Oh, I hate that. Yeah. Uh, just thinking about, like, things happening to eyes is just the worst. Uh, Bunuel, of course, uh, collaborated with Salvador Dali on Un Chien Andalou, but here he's with Epstein. Bunuel met Epstein at the very start of his film career when he was attending a private film school that was run by the French Impressionists. Bunuel would first work for Epstein on his 1927 film, Ma Pra, before the two of them would go on to make Usher. 
Then they would part ways because Bunuel refused to work on Abel Gantz's Napoleon, <laughs> and Epstein took this as an insult against Gantz, who was Epstein's mentor, and therefore refused to work with Bunuel again. Oh. The film itself, of course, is an adaptation of The Fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe, which is like a major horror novel in its own right. Yeah, well, short story. Is it a short story? It is, yeah. Okay. The Fall of the House of Usher short story is actually fairly early-ish in Poe's writing. Okay. The thing to keep in mind there is Poe was writing a lot, and he didn't even become that big of a household name until The Raven, which is like at least ten years after House of Usher was published. So Edgar Allan Poe, lived from 1809 to 1849. So it feels silly to, like, go over this, because he is just kind of, like, has a... He's a brand in and of sure, himself. Sure, sure. But for anyone listening where this is your first time hearing of Edgar Allan Poe, he's very known for uh, mystery stories, the macabre. He is considered one of, like, the fathers of detective fiction mm-hmm. and even science fiction in the U.S. He was one of the first writers of short stories. Yeah. And he's one of the first well-known American writers to try to be a writer full-time. Okay. Uh, so when he was born in 1809, it was to two actors. Uh, when he was one, his father abandoned the family, and when he was two, his mother died of tuberculosis. You know, he was orphaned. He was raised by this family, John and Francis Allen, which is where the Allen in his name comes from. Okay. It's a second last name. I always thought it was a middle name. Interesting. He was never formally adopted, though, even though he has their family name in his name. Hmm. For various reasons, all relating to his adoptive father's alcoholism, Poe's own alcoholism, and also gambling... They struggled financially, even once Poe was off to school. He was at the University of Virginia, but he left after one semester because of these financial struggles and enlisted in the military in 1827 under an assumed name. Oh, I didn't know Poe was in the military. Yeah, yeah, it didn't go well. (laughs) I feel like, like, what I know of Edgar Allan Poe is that, like, nothing in his life went well. No, no. I mean, part of why his career in the military didn't last long is he realized after about a year being in the military that what he wanted to do was write. Um, He had started writing poems while in the military and in order to leave the army he got himself kicked out. (laughs) Okay yeah good call. (laughs) Yeah so he first was publishing poems during his stint in the military. They were anonymously published. Uh, They're credited to a Bostontonian. And these are later collected into um, the collection Tamerlane and Other Poems. Once he left the military, he wanted to start writing full-time, and he focused on writing prose. So this is kind of like mid to late 30s, 1830s. Oh, okay. In order to support yourself as a writer, as you know, you need to be writing like 24-7. Right. So he wrote for many, many periodicals. He would write any kind of short story. He would try to start periodicals because so many periodicals were popping up during this time, and most of these periodicals did not last beyond the first issue because it was just kind of like a boom and bust. Okay, but yeah, it would make sense to want to try to start your own because it's way easier to sell stories to yourself than to other people. Yeah, this was kind of What Poe was up to, even in 1839, when he was hired as the assistant editor at Burton's Gentleman's Magazine. Mm, I read it for the articles. (laughs) And that is where The Fall of the House of Usher was published. Okay, so it was was a short story in a magazine. Yeah, that he was the editor for. (laughs) Sure. Uh, A little bit more context about where he's at in his life. Uh, At this point, he was already writing and publishing literary criticism in the Southern Literary Messenger magazine. And uh, yeah, he's been writing for about 10 years. He was moving around New England quite a bit. And uh, in 1836 is when he married his 13-year-old cousin, Virginia Clem. Yeah. He was 26 at the time. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that's kind of where he's at when we see this get published. The Fall of the House of Usher, published in 1839, uh, it was later revised for collection in an 1840s publication of Tales of the Grotesque and Arabesque. And what? Arabesque. I just want to point out that when Poe published The Fall of the House of Usher, he was 30. Mm-hmm. And he only lived till he was 40. Mm-hmm. So just to kind of give context for where he's at in his life as well. Right. So, um, The Fall of the House of Usher is considered one of Poe's most famous works of prose and is most, like, it's used as the example or characteristic of American Gothic literature. Okay, well, you're the Gothic horror fan, so (laughs) this should fit up your wheelhouse. Some of the inspiration for The Fall of the House of Usher, there there were a few listed, but two are interesting to note. In Boston, where Poe grew up, there was the Hezekiah Usher House. It was built in 1684. It was torn down in 1830. When they tore it down, they found two bodies embraced in the cellar. Oh, creepy. Uh, The rumor is that it was a sailor and the owner's young wife. Okay, yeah. (laughs) So I could see how that'd be a pretty good jumping off point for a macabre story. Definitely. And then the other possible inspiration. So when Poe was young and his mother was still alive but was very sick, he and his two siblings were often cared for by a Mr. and Mrs. Luke Usher. Okay. It almost sounds like Usher might be a common name a little bit, if this is the case. Yeah, I mean, any name, especially in that time period, but, like, any name that is a job is a common last name. I, I mean, it sounds like, you know, and biographers of famous people do this a lot, but, like, it sounds like the creepy house is the inspiration, and the people who were his babysitters when he was too young to remember them is more of the, like, stretch. Totally, totally. The plot of the short story is as follows, and I've tried to, like, simplify it a little bit. We have an unnamed narrator who receives a letter from his friend Roderick Usher about an illness he's suffering from. So the narrator goes to visit to cheer him up. Uh, Roderick's symptoms include sensory overload and anxiety, um, and his twin sister is also sick, and uh, her name is Madeline, and she tends to fall into death-like trances. Okay. To pass the time as he's visiting, Roderick will paint, and these are very realistic paintings, and the narrator reads novels aloud. Mm-hmm. Throughout the course of uh, spending time together, Roderick shares that he believes that their house is alive. Later, Madeline dies, and Roderick and the narrator put her in the family tomb to be interned for two weeks before burial. Okay. Post-internment, Roderick and the narrator become increasingly anxious in the house, and as with all gothic tales, a big storm arrives. Mm -hmm. To calm themselves during the storm, the narrator reads a novel called The Mad Tryst, where uh, he reads aloud to Roderick about a knight breaking into a dragon stronghold. As the narrator is reading, they hear the house itself cracking and ripping. When, in the story, the knight defeats the dragon... They hear shrieking throughout the house, echoing from the dragon shrieking in the novel. In the midst of this cacophony, Roderick is in hysterics and he confesses he knew his sister was actually alive when she was entombed. She was in one of her death-like trances. And just at that point, the bedroom door slams open with Madeline in the doorframe, who approaches Roderick, falls on him, and suddenly they are both dead. The narrator freaks the fuck out. Yeah, I mean, I would. And flees. And as he's running down the road, he looks back as the house of Usher crumbles. (laughs) Okay. That's the story. Yeah, so, you know, just your standard macabre, weird, fucked up story. Yeah. 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 Okay. (laughs) The film version stars Marguerite Gantz as Madeline, and she's actually Abel Gantz's wife. And the film debuted in October of 1928. And oddly enough, there was another House of Usher adaptation that came out in 1928 in the U.S. It's a short film. It's 12 minutes long. Oh. Uh, So we aren't covering it on the podcast because it's just like a little short film. But we are covering this film. But it always makes this film really hard to Google search (laughs) because there are two Fall of the House of Ushers from 1928. Uh, But this is the one that's uh, an hour long. 
This is the feature film version from France. And the version we have today of it comes thanks to controversial archivist Raymond Rohar. Why is he controversial? Well, so Rohar led a pretty interesting life. He became a collector of classic silent films in 1954 after he met Buster Keaton and discovered that most of Keaton's films were just sitting in Keaton's basement, not being seen by anyone, and just kind of like sitting around because by 1954, no one was really interested in old silent films. So Rohar made a deal with Keaton to become the official re-releaser of Keaton's films and put them back into circulation. And this kind of led to Rohar establishing like a business of buying old silent films and then like renting them for re-release or for showing them at festivals or whatever. Most silent films by the late 50s were in danger of being lost and were very undervalued. Uh, so Rohar did a lot to rescue them and give them wider appreciation. However, he did this acquisition and screening with a lot of questionable tactics. Buying up copyrights to films that were probably in public domain and then suing people over them because it was expensive for him to buy this collection of films so he felt that, you know, in order for him to make money off of it, he had to own the copyrights on them so that he would be the only one allowed to screen them, sort of having that exclusivity. Uh, one of the ways that he sort of secured new copyrights would be by making additions or changes to the films so that his versions would be unique enough that he could secure those copyrights on them. For example, uh, this version of Le Chute de la Maison Usher comes from 1960. It is visually identical to the original film, but it has a soundtrack where its French title cards are read in English by French actor Jean-Pierre Aumont, and it has a musical score by Roland Decand uh, in a kind of medieval folk style. This addition of this soundtrack thus enabled Rohar to secure and maintain a copyright over this film, which should be a public domain film. Rohar died in 1987 from AIDS with kind of a mixed legacy in the classic film community where he was credited for being the person who kind of saved silent film because his screenings of these films in the 60s really led to a reappreciation of silent film and a bringing of those films back into the film canon. On the other hand, he also had a reputation as being kind of a pirate, basically, mm. who really was like very ruthless in his acquisition and defense of the things that he thought he owned. In 2011, his 700 film collection was purchased by the Cohen Film Collection for restoration and DVD release, uh, which is how this version of Usher is commonly available today. So are we watching the version with like this soundtrack and this dude reading the... Yeah, that's, okay. that's the version that's available, basically. Okay. This 1960 re-release of Le Chute de la Maison Usher is what we'll be watching, and we've added it to our YouTube playlist... Uh, so it is available on the Scream Scene YouTube playlist for our listeners to watch along. And if you'd like to see that playlist, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. So we will hear a brief musical interlude, and then we will be right back after watching the film. We'll see you on the other side, Creatures of the Night. To Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Fall of the House of Usher from 1928. Ben, are, are you awake? Yeah, I, uh, I stayed awake through the movie, <laughs> um, but I will report that I am three for three on this movie, like, making me sleepy. But it has a very nightmare feel, so I think that's also why yeah, like, like, it's purposeful. Well, do we want to go into the plot summary? Sure. So, Fall of the House of Usher is set in a world where it is always very windy and where closed windows have yet to be invented. Yeah. Uh, everything is in soft focus and people do most of their activities in slow motion. The unnamed narrator is traveling through probably Transylvania where he stops <laughs> at 
like that little inn that's outside Dracula's castle and asks for the locals to give him a ride up to the house of Usher where his friend Roderick has summoned him because Roderick and his wife, Madeline, are both very sick. So the locals are all like, yeah, we'll drive you, but not super close. You can't, you know, go over the Borgel Pass on Valpurgis night and all that. (laughs) And he kind of has to walk the rest of the way and he arrives at uh, the fakest looking model of a house uh, that has ever been used in a movie where he arrives and is greeted by Roderick Usher, played by Jean Debucourt, doing his best Conrad Veidt impersonation. And basically the deal here is that Roderick is working on a painting of Madeline. The deal is that as he paints the painting, and the better the painting gets, the sicker Madeline gets, as if he is literally draining her life force by painting her. It's like reverse Dorian Gray. Yeah, pretty much. It, the painting itself is kind of an interesting effect because it's actually like the actress who plays Madeline, like, standing in a frame, like, being lit, <laughs> uh, so that, like, oh, the painting is so realistic because it's, like, actually her. And we are told that, like, the reason Roderick is doing this is because, like, all of the men of the House of Usher just have a hereditary desire to paint their wives. Okay. So Roderick keeps painting Madeline. She keeps getting sicker. It's pretty obvious that, like, this is what is happening. Like, the movie doesn't really do any kind of effort to try and make this mysterious. And at one point, Roderick's like, hey, friend who I asked to come here to hang out with us, can you like, fuck off on a walk or something so I can keep painting my wife. Uh, So his buddy obliges while he's kind of out walking the grounds. Roderick continues to paint Madeline until she collapses over dead. This is very upsetting to everyone, but, you know, they gotta gotta bury Madeline. They decide to bury her in, in the tomb on the grounds, and Roderick makes a big deal about... He's been reading a book of magnetism, which for some reason makes him think that Madeline might still be alive, and he kind of protests this to the doctor. That's never really explained, but uh, the doctor's like, no, she's dead. So Roderick kind of insists, though, that they don't nail the coffin shut. Uh, Then they take her over to the tomb, and it's worth saying that, like, everything that happens in this movie takes, like, 10 minutes for it to happen. So I can certainly see why there was like an American version that came out this same year that was like 12 minutes long. Uh, They get her to the tomb, they inter her in there, and as Roderick and his unnamed friend are walking out of the tomb, the doctor and uh, the other guy who was helping them take the casket over there start nailing it shut. Uh, And Roderick's kind of upset about that, but like, hey, it's, it's too late now. They go back to the house, and some time kind of passes, Now it's time for a big scary storm, which, like, just kind of makes everything really spooky and scary and and mysterious in the house. You know, Roderick's, he he is crazy, he is going crazy, he will be crazy. He just kind of has a standard crazy state of mind. Uh, So to try and put him at ease, unnamed friend decides to read him uh, a book. And then we see the casket fall over in the tomb, and we see Madeline get out of it, and we see her walk towards the house, and all the while, the wind is just going crazy. I mean, it's always windy in this movie, but certainly in this ending storm, it's like super windy so that cloth and curtains and things can blow around dramatically. And so we see her walk up to the mansion, and then they see her, and then the house is on fire either from being struck by lightning or from just the fact that, like, they lit this fireplace too big on fire. (laughs) They all run to get out of the house and they all make it out in time to turn around and see the house collapse with this, like, very stylized uh, nightscape behind the model with a very stylized sort of constellation and Milky Way and the house sort of collapses and they all make it out and the end. Uh, From your plot summary, it sounds like you did not enjoy this film. I'm still working through how I felt about it. I think I I admire things about this film, and I think it's a well-made film in terms of its technique and in terms of, like, the people making it were, were very competent people. I don't think it tells this story well, but I do think it what it does really well is build, like, a mood and an atmosphere. I really like this movie. Okay. And I see what you're saying... I think this movie tells this story very well. Okay. And I think that it's German Expressionist. (laughs) 
I, I think, I feel like to call back to our this is not a pipe reference in the first half, uh-huh. this is not German expressionism, if you know what I mean. Ooh, sure, sure. Yeah, okay. Fair <laughs> enough. I just feel like watching this movie, um, I got really frustrated with where like in individual scenes or individual moments, the movie was very effective, but in stringing all of those things together, it ended up losing the value of those things. I'm sort of speaking a little vaguely here, but I guess what I'm trying to say is like, this movie employs like every artistic (laughs) cinematic trick in the book. Like there's slow motion, there's model photography, there's light and shadow, there's smoke, there's superimposition, there's fast cuts, there's montage, there's juxtaposition, there's negative photography. But it, it never seems to be using them in service to anything focused or specific. It's just kind of like, okay, we did that now, so now we're going to do this trick, so now we're going to do this trick. And the result, to me, feels very scattershot. It feels like technique as a shotgun blast, where just every single... Because every single scene has some special artsy technique in them, none of those techniques end up feeling special. Uh, there are individual shots that you can see in isolation go like, oh, wow, that's cool. Like, there's a couple shots of this movie that look like the Evil Dead. Because yeah. they've got this, like, camera going really fast along the ground as, like, leaves blow away in front of it. But, like, they don't... Nothing in the story ends up standing out because it all feels the same. So rather than using those techniques for key moments, because they're kind of all used throughout, the movie just achieves this very monotonous feeling to me. But I will agree that what it does do really well is achieve a mood and an atmosphere. You talked about it as feeling like a... A nightmare. A nightmare. And it has a very dreamlike quality. The fact that the whole movie seems to be shot like a little out of focus gives it that feel for sure. Yeah. I disagree with the shotgun thing. Um, Like you mentioned during your plot summary how there are parts where like it just gets dragged on for ten minutes. (laughs) Yeah. And for me... So, like, this is my second time seeing this movie, and mm-hmm. I remember when we first watched it. You know those, like, afternoon summer naps? Right. Where, like, you either didn't get enough sleep or slept too long and you're super <laughs> groggy? That's how I felt after watching it the first time. Yeah. This time, maybe because I have, like, this, like, knowledge now of where horror has come so far, I was very intrigued with how the pacing of each, I'll say scene, but I think I mean action, Okay. Like, purpose of the scene, or, like, what's going on, was paced in a way that there were several climaxes throughout the film. Okay. So, like, the first climax is when Roderick is painting Madeline before she collapses. Right. Um, and I mean, like, the, the version that we were watching, the music was in service of this, too, but between the weird zooming in of Roderick's face as he approaches the painting mm-hmm. and the weird slow motion of her falling um, and the cuts between the two and then the cuts back to Buddy wandering around, yeah. things like that. Like, it built up into a climax there and then she's dead. So now we have to have a bit of, like, a mini denouement as we go through the process of, like, putting her in the coffin and, like, this very long procession. Like, you can also see this near the end when it's spooky, for sure. And I think the wind camera (laughs) evil dead moment um, is happening before the storm even hits uh, or right before or something. Um, and it's, like, building up, and then the characters themselves are like, okay, let's let's take a break, let's get our minds off this, and start reading. And it builds up and builds up again, and you see Madeline come out of the coffin. The techniques and the weird pacing are all in service of building up these climaxes, which I think you need in a horror film. I think your description of the use of these techniques as, like, a shotgun is valid. I think it's because... It doesn't start to get real weird like that until they reach the house. And then when Buddy's on his walk outside of the house, he's not experiencing any of that weird shit. It's all still based around the house. Um, and so I feel like that's in service of, like, this this cursed house, really. Not so much cursed family lineage, like with the urge to paint your wife, but I think it's like a cursed house itself. And part of the reason why I think that is when we're doing the procession of Madeline uh, out to the crypt, which is like, it seems like it's like miles away from the actual house proper. Right, yeah. 
we have these, like, superimposed candles mm -hmm. as, like, they're walking her to this boat, and then, like, they go on this river, and then that's when she's able to wake up from this curse, right? Mm. I think, I think, like, you make very good points, and I think you're probably right in a lot of ways. Like, I, I don't mean to suggest that the use of the techniques is random mm. or without purpose, but for me, it was the fact that they were constantly being used undermined their value. The, the, the use of it constantly gave the story a level of pretension <laughs> to me that undermined its effectiveness as a horror story because the film seemed to be kind of yelling at me, look at how artistic I am. And I sat there going, yes, but get on with it. <laughs> and like, they would do these cool things that I, I thought were great. Like when <laughs> Madeline dies, there's this like, weird shot where he's carrying her around the hall and they've like mounted the camera to him and it's sort of like a very like modern almost shot as like the the environment's kind of changing around him as he walks around but he seems to be stable like there's great shots but then it would be like we'd get that shot and then we'd get that shot like six or seven other times before the movie moved on to the next thing that was sort of why i started getting tired of these things because it, would, it was so repetitive in their use when it would use them. Uh, the moments feel standout in isolation when you discuss them, but in watching the movie, they kind of bleed together for me. Maybe that's why it feels like a nightmare to mm -hmm. me. Like, I noticed this with the editing probably clearest when Buddy is at... I keep calling him Buddy because, like, unnamed friend feels, like, <laughs> so long to say. Buddy's at the inn asking for a driver to take him up. And we see him talking to someone to, like, persuade him into being his driver. And we see the carriage come up outside in a different shot. Cut back to him talking to the driver still. Cut to driver getting into the cart and helping Buddy into the cart. Cut to still in the inn, Buddy's getting out his hearing aid. Yeah, like, things are very obtuse. And I think that certainly contributes to the nightmarish feeling. And I'm not saying, like, I don't like that, because... I love movies that kind of feel like dreams or nightmares. Like, so I was kind of trying to put my finger on, like, why doesn't this movie work for me? And clearly it works for you, which is cool. The changes made to Roderick and the way that the film focuses on Roderick introduces some interesting layers to what this movie's doing that I thought were interesting. I didn't like, but I thought were interesting. <laughs> but I kind of want to talk about them in a, a little bit later. Um, what I wanted to bring up was you know, we're talking about this kind of nightmare dream mood that the film has. And I thought that what the film was really good at doing with that was it kind of has a, a constant sense of melancholy. Yeah. And this very oppressive sense of, like, the inevitability of fate, right? You're kind of always marching towards an inevitable end. Like, Roderick and, and Madeline are, are fucked from the moment you see them, right? It made me wonder what their wedding day might have looked like. Right. Like, were these people ever happy? Yeah. It kind of bothered me that in introducing this new subplot about Roderick painting his wife, the film really reduces Madeline to an object on a pedestal. Totally. She has no agency in this story. She's either Roderick's obsession as a model for the painting, or she's a source of anxiety when she's in the ground but she's never really a character. I'm not sure how different that is from the short story, though. Because, like, so to be fair, I haven't read the short story, but the way that it's described that she comes in during, like, the height of the storm, falls on Roderick, and then they're both dead, mm. it's almost as if she's a puppet of the house. Sure. Whereas here, she at least gets to live at the end. I didn't feel the connection with the houses greatly in this version, and, and that's something maybe to talk about a bit later. But with Madeline, one thing that bothered me was I didn't see why it was necessary to say that Roderick's desire to paint her was like a, a hereditary thing. Because if you told me that his desire to paint her was out of some intense passion for her, I could at least sympathize with Roderick in some way. And also understand something about Madeline that even if they've kind of fallen to this place where she's where he's become so obsessed with the painting he doesn't even see her anymore. At least it would be like, ah, but he's the reason he's doing this painting is because he loves her so much. But instead it's just like, no, I have painting-itis. It's a hereditary <laughs> disorder. Because the family tree is brought up, mm -hmm. I feel like it's something more about 
the burdens of, like, what's expected of you with this family name. Well, the family tree thing feels like an appendix left over from the short story. Because the short story was so much more concerned with degeneracy. You know, the short story's about uh, a once-proud family that's collapsed into this degenerate state and then literally collapses at the end. And I feel like by turning Roderick and Madeline from brother and sister to husband and wife, they lost that because in the short story, there's certainly more than a little bit of a hint of like an incestuous relationship between the two of them. So in getting rid of that, they tried to introduce this other weird (laughs) hereditary thing to try and explain or show that the family's a little strange. Yeah, and I think, like, if they wanted it to be, you know, the weight of the family name, like, these duties of, like, the hereditary desire to paint or whatever, (laughs) and, like, the fact that, like, you see many other paintings just covered up and just, like, this empty frame Mm -hmm. uh, for Madeline. I feel like if that's the theme they were going for, Madeline and Roderick should not have lived at the end. Yeah, that's a big problem I have with this movie. That was the point where I was like, "Mm, Epstein, you missed the point of the story. Mm. Because, like, in this movie, the fall of the House of Usher is merely a literal event. (laughs) The house falls. But everybody makes it out alive. In the short story, like, the fall of the House of Usher is a metaphorical title. The House of Usher is in House Stark, right? Like, it's not about the... The family line. Yeah, it's not about the literal fucking house. So I think he kind of misses the ball there. But I think the reason everyone lives at the end is because Epstein, I suspect that Epstein has turned Roderick into a character that he identifies with. I don't identify with Roderick. I think Roderick's a fucking ass in this movie. (laughs) But I think Epstein does because he's turned Roderick into this tortured artist. And I think for Epstein, it made Roderick and his devotion to his objectified wife on a pedestal too sympathetic so they get to live at the end. Whereas for Poe, these two were like disgusting degenerates. And, you know, in in classic horror like Poe, the point was that the wicked got punished with these gruesome, ironic fates. But because Epstein's made them into these sympathetic, tragic characters instead of horror characters, now they get to get out alive at the end, right? Which is very ironic, at least with Roderick, because he keeps having these lines as he's painting this portrait of, like truth or life or something Mm -hmm. like his clearly his goal in painting his wife is realism Mm -hmm. Uh, and for a french impressionist filmmaker constantly in search of the photogeny Mm -hmm. like identifying with this other creative who's in search of the realist side of things i mean but then there's the fact that like Roderick goes so far in portraying his wife that he's literally draining the life force out of her. And the implication is that the painting has a life of its own. Like, there are shots where the painting seems to kind of move or blink, you know. So he's, he's captured the photogeny, right? He's captured that mystical thing between creator and recorded subject. Yeah. Right? I think that the thing that was interesting to me was... And and this is the reason why I think I say that, like, the way that this film is shot fails to tell the story or fails to do the story justice. I don't... I think this is a good movie. And I think it is a good movie... I think it's the movie Epstein wanted to make. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a good House of Usher movie. I don't think it's a good Edgar Allan Poe movie. And the reason I say that is I think by slowing the pace to such a crawl and by giving us kind of every event in the form of these kind of very repetitive montages. What Epstein does is he kind of takes away any sense of fear or terror or horror away from the story for me. Oh, I so disagree. I think for me, like, fear is uncertainty. And when everything's laid out for you so deliberately, the uncertainty goes away. And I think terror is that shock of something sudden and unexpected. And again, when everything's so elegiac and slow, the terror goes away. Like, for me, the best example of that is that, like, we don't get to experience the shock 
that the characters feel when Madeline comes into the room and is alive again. Because we've already seen her walking to the house for five minutes. So there's no moment there where we're shocked to see her alive. They see her alive and we're like, yeah, we know that. So there's no climax there for us. See, I feel shock when, like, we see her coming through the woods. I think it's a spooky and evocative image, but it doesn't have enough to evoke that feeling of fear in me. And I think horror, horror then becomes like the revulsion of the, like, realization of, you know, this thing has happened and you're realizing what really happened and you have that feeling of horror. And I think in the original story, that comes from the fact that they mistook one of these death-like trances of hers for death and buried her alive. And then when she comes back, it's like, oh my god, what have we done? In this version, there's no death-like trances. So there's no mistake that's made there that's tied into something previously established in the story. Instead, it's just he paints her until she dies. And then he's just convinced, even as they're burying her, like he's already convinced she's still alive. So there's no shock. There's no ironic twist of like, oh my god, we screwed up. There's just, he kills her. Then he's convinced she's still alive, but buries her anyway. And so when she comes back, he's like, yeah, I knew it, basically. And I think that, for me, like, I feel like I'm being held at arm's length from the story a lot. And I think what it does for me is it transforms a horror story into a tragedy. To me, this, the story felt like a, like a Greek tragedy in the sense of the inevitability of everything that happens. I see where you're coming from. I I do disagree, though. And I think kind of the crux of why I disagree, like, we can talk about the film itself, whatever, how it constructs things, whatever. I think the crux of why we have differing opinions about this is you see fear as uncertainty, was it? Mm-hmm. For me, this was scary because it was that, like, he just continues to paint this portrait, mm-hmm. even when, like, it's clear, it's obvious that she's getting sicker. And yeah. like, I feel like he has a moment of that horror of what have I done after he's finished the painting, he's admiring it, he's so proud, and then like he trips over her body and is horrified. Yeah. But the the horror of like like people not listening to you, right. being like, no, I, I forbid you to nail this coffin, and then them doing it in secret anyways. Yeah. Um being taken for mad as a result. Like, part of it is, like, the mood setting of when Buddy is reading the story of, like, this knight fighting this dragon, and Roderick is sitting in this rocking chair, just, like, with this crazy smile on his face. Like, I interpret his craziness there as, like, he knows that the house itself is doomed, Hmm. and he knows it's coming tonight. Hmm. And then it's all disrupted because Madeline is alive hmm. um, and she comes back. And then, like, it's like they aren't leaving the house until she comes back, right? Hmm. I, think, I think you're probably right. I think, though, that in a way you're kind of proving my point. You unpack a lot of interesting stuff. I think, for one thing, like, the fear that you're talking about where you know what's happening but you can't stop it and the fear of not being listened to and the fear of kind of having to watch something really terrible happen are very nightmare-like fears. You know, like when you're in a nightmare and you know that, like, this isn't right, but you can't change anything. Yeah. That feeds into, you know, the, the dreamlike quality of the film that we've been talking about. And I think you're, you're right also that the best moment of horror in the film comes when he realizes that she's dead after painting her. And it kind of comes back to this thing we keep talking about that, like, the subplot that's new for this movie of him painting his wife to death is better than all the stuff that he actually took from Poe. That, like, he's more interested in this new thing than in the the trappings of the short story he's adapting that he's kind of put around it. The reason why, for me, it didn't work was the moments of horror that you're identifying of him accidentally killing her with the painting, or I don't know how much of an accident it is, but he can't stop. And the stuff of, you know, them burying her when he's certain she's still alive aren't where the horror's coming from in the story, in the post story. I think that's where I'm coming from, is that the moment that's supposed to be horrific in the post story is the moment where you go, 
oh my god, we buried her alive. And then, like, right when you realize that, the fucking, like, door slams open and she's there. And it's like, da-na-na, or whatever. And, like, the lightning crashes or whatever. And that moment falls completely flat in this movie for me. But there are, you've identified, there are these other moments that are quite horrific. And that's, I think, what I'm trying to get at when I say that, like, I think... This movie is effective, but it doesn't do a good job of telling the story that it set out to tell. Instead, it finds other moments within that story that Epstein's clearly, like, more interested in, and those moments become effective instead. I think we're seeing the same things, but interpreting them completely differently. Like, we're seeing the (laughs) same points, and that's why you're like, yeah, you're proving my point, when it's like... (laughs) When I hear you talk, it's like, yeah, no, that's the point. What are you talking about? <laughs> sure. Uh, so. It's funny you bring this up, this divide between us, where we're saying the same thing, but meaning something differently. Because um, there were two different critical reviews of this film that did the same thing. There's a, I, I forget the critics' names, but there's one who talked about using the actress, Marguerite Gantz, as the portrait and how you can kind of see her move and see her blink, and talked about how otherworldly and surreal and effective that was. And another critic talking about that same technique and going like, it's a good technique to make like Roderick look like a good painter, but then like the actress blinks and the artifice is broken and it ruins the whole fucking shot. Where they're both talking about the same thing, and just for one guy that like makes the movie, and for the other guy it breaks the movie. It's so interesting because for you, the slow, deliberate pacing increases the dread. Yeah. You know, um, you know those bridges that have, like, like, the entrance to the bridge, and then, like, the suspension stuff goes up, and then it goes back down, like an M, Uh you know, like that? That's how this movie feels to me, right? Like, it feels like there's, like, multiple climaxes, and they do kind of get bigger, but then it has, like, the long pacing pauses in between, Hmm. which further the dread of, like, when is the next thing going to happen? Interesting. For me, that deliberate pacing robs me of the horror feel and the terror feel because it gives me the time to kind of understand and process the events that are unfolding so that they never really have a chance to shock or disturb me. Mm. Yeah, I think I think for me the big mistake that the movie makes is by letting all the characters get out alive. I find myself like wondering what the point of the story is then. Like It, it, fe- it feels like it renders the story's events kind of moot because... It's not the fall of the House of Usher, it's that time our house burnt down. Yeah, I do agree that it should have only been Buddy that got out. You mentioned the night sky, Mm -hmm. that it was very stylistic. It's basically like they have these Christmas lights poked through this black cardboard in order to like show the constellations. So I think that was mirroring the family tree that was on the paper. Oh. It was like a trunk, Mm. and it had, like, slight branches. Because you know that whole phrase of, like, you can't save the tree, the roots are rotten, or something like that? Sure. The way that it's positioned, the house itself, is where the roots would be of this tree. I didn't even... Oh, okay, that's really interesting. Yeah, so that's also why I'm giving it, like, the house itself was the curse, not necessarily the name. Right. Hmm. I think I think this is a good, well-made movie. It just doesn't work for me like it works for you. Yeah, I think this will make ranking very interesting. <laughs> because I was certainly looking in a particular area that I don't think you will go with. Okay, so let's, let's get into ranking. Whereabouts are you looking on the list, Sarah? <laughs> What's your range? Top six. Oh, oof. Wow. Uh, the lowest... I, I, I hesitate about putting it below the 1926 Student of Prague. You hesitate about putting it below that? Yeah. I don't Ooh think boy. it feel like it would knock off Phantom Carriage, but I do feel like a contender against possibly Phantom of the Opera, maybe Cat in the Canary. Wow. I do remember thinking watching this that, like, this is probably the most art film movie we've seen on the podcast by far, mm. where, like, Caligari has the weird look that says, like, this is an art film. But it has a plot that's very, like, easy to follow. Its themes are also a little art filmy. Yeah, a little art filmy. But, you know, we talked about in our Caligari episode that they, like, almost intentionally designed it to be, like, the perfect Venn diagram between, like, popular and artistic. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Whereas, like, this movie is, like, no, this is a movie that was meant to be seen by, like, people, like, drinking gin and tonics and, like... (laughs) 
having like hors d'oeuvres at like a, a gallery opening or something. So I'm looking a lot lower than you on the list. Yeah, where where are you looking? My ceiling was I was willing to put it above Genuina like pretty easily. Oh boy! Like I was like this can knock Genuina out of the top ten. Like sweet. Uh, and below Eerie Tales, and my floor was going to be above the 1912 short film Jekyll and Hyde, and below the Unknown. That was my. That's my. Oh, range. that is so low. Yeah, my range I is basically disagree. between. My range is between ten and sixteen, and you're between one and six. Okay, so so why do you think that this would go below Eerie Tales? Mostly I was just thinking that I found some of the entries in Eerie Tales to be, like, more effectively scary. My main thing with this movie was that, like, I, I liked the atmosphere and the mood. It never disturbed me or scared me because the pacing never let it for me. Okay, so how how about this? This movie versus The Hands of Wolak. Yeah, that's, that's, I think, definitely, like, a pretty, like, comparable head-to-head. The character of Roderick Usher in this movie feels a lot like Orlack yeah. in that movie. They And, like, the sets, of the course. The sets are very similar. Personally, I prefer Hands of Orlack. I think that Orlack's hand does a better job of disturbing me and of being off-kilter and of being kind of strange and threatening. I never really feel threatened. For, for me, the Hands of Orlack falls apart, especially by the end. Mm-hmm. And that movie's focus is so much on Orlac's descent into madness, whereas this film is like, that madness is already there. It's been yeah. blatant for a while. Yeah, there's no descent here. Like, Roderick doesn't really have a character arc. He just is. is. Yeah. But it balances those stories better than Hands of Orlac. Hands of Orlac is like, did you know he's, he's going crazy? <laughs> he thinks his hands are from a murder. By the way, his wife is having money troubles, but really, these hands are from a murder. By I... the way, there's a convoluted conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about putting the fall of the House of Usher above Hands of Orlac below the 1926 Student of Prague? Yeah... It's tough for me, because, like, I do feel like it's pretty on par with Hans Orlack. Like, that, for me, I can feel that. My, my problem becomes that, like, in all honesty, if Fall of the House of Usher starred Conrad Veidt as Roderick <laughs> Usher, like, no question, it would be going above Hans Orlack. But instead it stars this, like, French actor who I feel is, like, French bargain Conrad Veidt. <laughs> so it's, it's tough for me. I'm trying to think of things to say, oh, but Orlac's hand did this so much better, <laughs> right? To try and defend Orlac's hand. And I, I can't really. I just know that I kind of like the cinematography in Orlac's hand better, but like that's not, that doesn't, that isn't anything. I watch this movie and my question becomes, did John Epstein just graduate from film school? Cause to What's me, wrong with that? Because to me it feels like like a kid who has just learned about all these tools and is determined to use every single one of them in his new movie. I will say I've been hard on the artsy stuff in this movie, but, you know, to be fair to it, I don't know how much of that stuff was cliche as art film tropes in 1928 yet. Like, for me, when I see, like, Madeline collapse in slow motion and, like, you know, this kind of stuff, I'm like, oh my god, really? We're doing this? But I, I, I suppose, like, I need to think about the fact that in 1928 that shit hadn't been, like, parodied by The Simpsons, like, a million times yet or whatever. Yeah. Okay, on, on the basis of giving it the benefit of the doubt, based on the fact that it's 1928, and that those techniques are innovative instead of pretentious. <laughs> um, I'll put it above Orlac's hand for sure. Maybe four points higher than the hi the highest I wanted to put it. So I think it's a pretty good compromise between your lowest and my highest. And it still knocks Genuina out of the top ten, so I accomplished that objective. Yeah, there we go. Okay. So going in at number seven on the list, La Chute de la Maison Usher from 1928, directed by Jean Epstein. All right, if you would like to see this list and uh, applaud where we've put The Fall of the House of Usher, you can check our website at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can also find our appeal 
box if you really want to contest and <laughs> make it number one. I'd be totally down with that. Uh, if you don't want to go to Tumblr, you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. I'm certainly looking forward for like a long academic email explaining like how much I got French Impressionism wrong. Lee Carruthers emailing you very upset. I can't believe did, you for, you forgot all this class. Did you not listen to anything I taught you? <laughs> you can yell at us on Twitter if you'd like. You can uh, find us at underscore scream scene. And you can find the podcast on iTunes. Uh, we'd love it if you would leave us a comment or review. Uh, that's how other people can find the show. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday. And uh, if you really enjoy the show... Uh, share it with your friends. Let someone else know. If you know someone else who's into horror or into the history of cinema, um, just share the show and uh, help grow the the audience. Our last two episodes were with really bad films, and finally we have one that cracks the top ten again. Tell your friends. Tell your friends how <laughs> they can learn, how they can get that film education without spending a dime. Yeah. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, it's the end of an era. Because Fall of the House of Usher was our last silent film. I feel like it was a soft ending, because the version we watched had the dude narrating things. Sure, that's fair. I mean, to be fair, historically silent film had a soft ending anyways. Nothing really ever <laughs> has like a hard, a hard line, very few things have a hard line break. Yeah. Um, but next week we will be watching our first sound film. It's directed by Roland West from 1930, and it's a remake of a movie we've already seen. It's Roland West doing a remake of The Bat in sound and also in widescreen as The Bat Whispers. Great. I can't wait for this to just be fucking fantastic. Beat out Cat and the Canary. It's your favorite. It's gonna be great. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) All right, so uh, we'll see you next week creatures of the night i hope you enjoyed our episode on fall the house of usher and i hope you'll be back with us next week for the bat whispers bye bye